I'm Gabby. Welcome to the My Possible Self podcast. For today's episode, it's not a light subject matter. It's not an easy conversation to have, but it's a really important one. Suicide is a global health issue. One in every 100 deaths worldwide is a result of someone taking their own life. One person dies by suicide every 40 seconds and data suggests for every suicide there are 20 attempts taken. There are still far too many myths and stigma around suicide and on this episode we have no better guest than Rory O'Connor to dispel them. Rory has dedicated the last 25 years of his life to the field of suicide prevention and research. He is a professor of health psychology at the University of Glasgow, where he leads the Suicidal Behaviour Research Laboratory. He is a world leader on suicide research and prevention, president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, and he is author of the recently released When It Is Darkest, Why People Die By Suicide and What We Can Do To Prevent It. Of course, due to the subject matter, I have to flag parts of this chat may be a little triggering for some of you. But although it is a heavy topic to talk about, Rory's warmth, compassion and openness doesn't make it feel like that. And please do stay till the end of the episode, even if you have to pause and come back to us later, because for the last 10 minutes, I talked to the wonderful Alice Hendy about the launch of her new online tool, Ripple, which intercepts people from looking at harmful online content in regards to taking their own life. So sit back, get comfy, and thank you again for being here. By showing up and listening, you're already taking some action and could learn something today that could help save someone's life. So let's proceed with the episode. Rory, it is truly wonderful to be talking to you today. I am conscious that for anybody listening that might be feeling a bit vulnerable or a loved one is um, struggling right now, I kind of want to dive into the topic. And something that you say in the book, which I find very sad, is that suicide is often a permanent solution for a temporary problem. Yeah, no. So first of all, before we get into the nitty gritty, Gabby, it's I'm d- delightful to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And and yeah, you're right. I suppose for the last 25 years, I've immersed myself in suicide research and suicide prevention, and really since my obviously early early 20s. And um, and and I suppose one of the things I sort of say, say in the book is I, mean, I didn't realize then when I started this work that it would become my life's passion. Um, and, and sadly, also, I've been touched by suicide myself a couple of times, and it is absolutely devastating. So, so I suppose the message is, as you say, just diving right in, direct into things is, if you are struggling, if you're listening to this and you are struggling, I assume we'll touch on different bits of how we all can help and understand and, and hopefully prevent suicide. Is But my message is just straight up is, if you are struggling, please reach out for help. Please ask somebody, please. Tell somebody how you're feeling, and um, because in my experience, over those 25 years, is the number of people in that moment of crisis who think actually I'm not worth living, I'm not worth somebody connecting with, and and they've got, but for some way they've been able to get through that crisis, and they're so pleased they're still alive, because one of the challenges of when you're an acutely suicidal is 
the mind plays these sort of mental tricks on you and you don't, so you feel that you're a burden on others and you feel that um, you're, you're not worth anything. So please, please just believe me, please hold on, please reach out. And then if you have reached out before in the past and, and you haven't got the help and support again, well, please keep trying because similarly, the number of people, like anything, we, if we're looking for help for anything, sometimes you don't get the immediate help the first time you ask. So please, every one of us is worth living in this world and you have something to contribute. So I think that's a really important, well, I suppose, message of hope to start the podcast. With. Definitely. And thank you for that. And I just want to piggyback off something else that you clarify very early on in the book. Suicide is not about dying. It's about ending pain. So it's this kind of, for the most part, would you say internal agony that somebody's going through that they just they can't see a way out from? Well, it's a combination of both, but I just realized there, Gabby, I didn't actually answer your first question. <laughs> your first question about the permanent solution, permanent solution and, and temporary yeah, problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm a very good editor, so I can <laughs> slip it. I'll, I'll slip in your answer. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's yeah. just a conversation yeah. anyway. No, but sure. in a way, it helps me answer the, the question about um, the mental pain, the internal mental pain is, yeah, so again, if we think about, although there is no one single factor that leads to suicide, it is complicated and it includes things from people's past and things to do with their biology of who they are and their social context and their psychology. But ultimately, it's, it is so true to say that it, what drives so many people to make that decision to maybe take that ultimate um, suicide attempt, which could end in their life, is usually not about wanting to end their life. It's just that they find life so overwhelming. The pain of living outweighs the sort of pleasure of living. Do you know what I mean? It's that pain, that that that, that combination or that, that sort of balancing act. And so, yeah, I think the internal pain is probably more painful than the external context of pain. And, and I talk a lot in the book about this idea about mental entrapment and, and, and uh, that touches on a model of suicide I've developed to try and understand suicide. And, and what we found is that there's, there's, when we're thinking about internal entrapment, is internal pain and external entrapment. So external entrapment could be I mean, your, um, your long-term relationship is broken down or you're unemployed or you just, um, you just don't see there's so much stuff going on in your life externally and that's the external entrapment. You're trapped by life circumstances. But in our work, when we compared sort of that external entrapment with this internal pain of feeling you're a burden and worthless and, and basically the world will be a better place without you in it. When you do this comparison, it's that internal pain, which is much more dangerous, much more likely to be associated with suicidal risk. And of course, they're interlinked. Like anything, there's no, it's all complex. But, but again, I think it's that internal pain which you feel so out of control. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to do this a lot over our chat. I'm going to quote you again. Um, well, that's good. <laughs> I've got the book next to me. I've been fascinated since I picked it up. Suicide is the end product of a complex set of biological, psychological, clinical, social and cultural difference that comes together in a perfect storm, which is kind of what you were, were you just touching upon when you've got varying different complex factors because you have studied this so much and you you know you've you've i mean you've read all these suicide notes and you've you've spoken to people that have attempted to take their own life and that have survived so 
Have you noticed any common denominators? I mean, childhood trauma, lack of serotonin. Again, I'm picking up bits from the book that I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if there is any factors that you see a lot popping up. Well, I mean, what's really um, fascinating and puzzling about suicide is that there are many, many different pathways to suicide. And for some, it is childhood trauma. For many, in particular in Western countries, um, suicide happens in the context of mental illness or mental health problems. Social disadvantage is also in the mix. Uh, but what's really, so to my mind, what's really interesting is, and if we're trying to understand and then hopefully help and contribute to prevention is that what I've been trying to understand for the last 25 years is how all those different factors affect an individual, right? So to affect how you think or feel, because ultimately suicide, when we've touched on already, suicide is about ending mental pain. But for you to sort of get into that state, we often talk about in the suicide research field or the clinical field of this tunnel vision, this cognitive constriction, that when you're in that acute suicidal state, you can't see any options. Now, so what leads to that sort of sense of tunnel vision or that sense of entrapment can include early life trauma. And I'll give an example of that in a second. But also it could be that you have, a, you have a mental illness which you think is so overwhelming that you'll never get better. So that can contribute. Or it could be that you're from a socially disadvantaged background and life has just thrown up challenge after challenge after challenge. Or it could be that you have problems with drugs and alcohol and problems with drugs and alcohol impact on, on your ability to cope with everyday life. And we think about when we're trying to understand the sort of that perfect storm of factors. So I always think the question I always now ask is if, and I, and I firmly believe this and research shows this and, and when you speak to people who are suicidal, it, re, it confirms it is. So if you think of it, suicidal thoughts, so people become suicidal when they feel defeated or humiliated by life, or they feel a sense of rejection or loss or shame. Right? So, so then you think about well, what, what leads to those feelings of defeat and, and humiliation? Humiliation, that is such a powerful word. Just I had a reaction when you said about hum, humiliated by their own situation, which they might not be able to do anything about. Absolutely. So that contributes to this sense of lack of control. And so... So if you, every human being, I believe, every day what we try to do, and this is nothing specific to do with suicide, but you'll see how it's related in a second. When we get up in the morning, we're trying to control how we feel. Now, we don't wake up in the morning and go, let's try and control how we feel. But that's ultimately what we want to do. We want to feel, hopefully most people want to feel, mm. we feel okay. Mm. So you're trying to regulate or control your emotions. And and then all and everything we do in life, doesn't matter if it's, go in the shop to get milk or to pick up your children or to care for a, a loved one or whatever it may be. But that's all some sense of control. And we as humans, we can't, we, we struggle when we feel out of control. And so to the humiliation, going back to that example, or feeling defeated is a sense of being, or a sense of loss or rejection. There are things which are outside your control. And that sense of being outside your control is painful, right? Because we we can't deal with uncertainty and ambiguity. We just we try to live a life of more certainty so we know what's going to happen. That's what the human, the human brain, in the sense, is 
is wired in that way. Yeah. So if you then combine, I'll let you get back in in a second, Gabby. <laughs> no, please keep going. But, but that, so that, so you think about then that sense of defeat and humiliation, or which may have been driven by loss or rejection or shame, right? So that's an unbearable state to be in, right? Mm. And so then if that's an unbearable state, what we try and do is, well, how do I, what can I do so I don't feel like that? Mm. So suicidal thoughts are more likely to emerge, to happen, if you feel trapped by those thoughts of defeat and humiliation and loss. And, as, and, and so then if you're trying to then prevent suicide, what we're trying to do, first of all, to my mind, there's at least two things, broad, broad things we should be doing to prevent suicide. And this is very simplistic, but hopefully it makes a point. If we're trying to prevent suicide, we want to, first of all, prevent as many people as possible becoming suicidal. And that's the first thing. But then if we can't prevent people from becoming suicidal, we want to reduce as much as we can the number of people who, as I talk about in the book, crossing the precipice mm. from thinking about suicide to acting on the thoughts. It's the, in right? the intrusive suicidal thoughts. That's what we need to develop tools for, I suppose, or our own kind of ways of blocking them, you know, batting them away, however you want to coin it. Yeah, or ma managing them. Managing right? them, so right. It, yeah, absolutely. So but if we go back to the sort of the drivers of suicidal thoughts, and so if, according to our research and others, and according to my model of suicide, then I'll give the full name, which is a bit of a mouthful, which is the integrated motivational volitional model. I'm glad you said it because I had noted it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the IMV model, but that's sort of the backbone of my book, which hopefully I've written in a way which is accessible and understandable to anybody irrespective of your, your background too. But, but basically, so you'll see where, why I brought this up, because I'm trying to bring it back to your question about the complexity. So, so my argument is that although it's so complex, to my mind, what you're trying to understand is what makes people feel defeated and humiliated mm -hmm. from which they cannot escape. Because mm. it's, it's that defeat and humiliation plus entrapment, this trap by mental pain, which leads to, to suicidal thoughts happening. So when you're saying one of the common features, so the common psychological profile of suicide risk is that defeat and humiliation, which has arisen from loss, shame, rejection. But it's that combination of defeat and humiliation from what you're trapped by. Mm. But what leads you to become defeated and humiliated could be your experience of trauma early on in life. So for example, if you've been abused as a child, then often that could, so early on in life, that's when we learn to trust people. That's where you learn to form relationships. That's where we learn that we're lovable and that other people will want to spend time with us. So although there's no inevitability, for suicide, suicide is never inevitable, and it is it is preventable right up until the last moment. We hope, but if you're so, if you're thinking about somebody who's experienced early life trauma, it can interrupt with their attachment. So how they relate from relationships early on in life, it's like a critical period of development. But also, we know that early life trauma inter interferes with some of your genetic expressions, the way your genes express themselves, which we call epigenetic phenomena. And, and these and, and that gene expression could be your some parts of your genetic profile is turned on or off, and that could be then a risk factor for 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 suicide or for mental health problems or whatever it may be. So there, and then somebody with with um, mental health problems with mental illness, 
mental illness can affect us in many, many different ways. In part, there's biological factors associated with mental illness, but there's huge, huge social factors associated with mental illness. And that health inequality, that, that gradient, because we know that people who die by suicide, um, if we look at in the UK, for example, people, first of all, three quarters of all suicides are by men. There's a, also a huge gradient in terms of social class. Is it if you're from more socially disadvantaged background, you're at least three times more likely to end your own life compared to somebody from more affluent background. But anyway, so just, I will bring it back to, to your questions then, Gabby, is it, so for me, it's all about understanding that sense of defeat and humiliation mm-hmm. and this mental entrapment. And I'm gonna bring it back to defeat and humiliation as well, um, and, and shame. And again, you brought her up in the book. I'm gonna bring up Caroline Flack because I, uh, I didn't know her very well, but we've got a lot of mutual friends. We kind of rolled in the same circles. And I was in the States when when the news broke about her um, taking her own life. And I felt really rocked and surprised by that. And I, and I bring her up because when you talk about to do with low income and to do with, you know, maybe being in, uh, living in a in a minority group culturally in whichever country you live in, Although yes, they they are, they outweigh the the people that seem to have everything. She was obviously really suffering, and um, yeah, a very high profile case. And I just when you talk about defeat and humiliation and shame, I think she obviously felt that for very different reasons than somebody that comes from a low income family that maybe just is frightened they're going to lose their house and can't keep their head above water. Yeah, no, absolutely, Gabby. I, um... I think Caroline Flack's death, I, I was really surprised as well. I, it really rocked me, and I've never met her in my life mm. before. I was surprised by that. And, but, but I think you've, you've raised a really important point, which is, which is at the heart of my understanding of suicide, which is, first of all, suicide can affect any one of us. So irrespective of background and wealth and ethnicity and gender and sexual identity, it can affect any one of us. Now, there are, of course, some people here more, some groups of people who are more vulnerable, more at risk. But, but th- at the heart of it is, is that I would argue is that that sense of defeat and humiliation and entrapment, that is like a fundamental process. Like we, all, we all can feel that. And as you've just nicely summarized much more succinctly than me, is what leads, that, leads to that is different for somebody from different backgrounds. So although I can't comment on Caroline Flack's situation specifically as I don't know her when I watched the documentary with her family um, this year they talk about that they've, they've talked about her sense of, of um, whatever her psychological pain and the, the sort of that, that mental entrapment she experienced but the causes of that seem to be very different and it also but what was interesting about the documentary was it highlighted all the stuff that nobody in the media knew about so when I wrote that bit in my book of we didn't know that documentary hadn't been aired. And I deliberately didn't comment on anything about Caroline Flack, except I was disappointed by the way that it was. People were just coming to their own conclusions about why she had taken her own life mm. without knowing the details. Yeah. And so, you're, so you were right in your in, in saying that, so yeah, so Caroline Flack's reasons for feeling defeated and entrapped were different from somebody from a, a more socially disadvantaged background. I think that's so, so true. So to me, that's an important message to get out there because 
It's about recognizing that we all have a mental health. We all mm. are potentially vulnerable and it doesn't matter who we are. Absolutely. I want to now bring up again something that you mentioned in your book. So the mental illnesses most commonly associated with suicide are major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder and substance use disorders. But you've stressed that it would be incorrect to say most people who die by suicide have a mental illness. So I'm taking the global perspective there um, because in the, if you look at the research in the United Kingdom, in the UK or in the United States, so there's, there's this widely cited statistic in the suicide field, which is 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental illness. Now, there's been then sort of a bit of pushback because um, if you think about it, sometimes that, that diagnosis or that um, classification of somebody having a mental illness is after the death sometimes uh, and people at the coroner's court might be trying to understand if it's in the UK or in England trying to understand why the person died and the, but the reason so I'm not so I'm saying definitely it's really important we look at mental illness as the as part of the background risk but the reason I say most people who die don't have a mental illness is because if you look at the fact that um 79% of the world's suicides are in low and middle income countries. If you look at then the relationship between mental illness or mental health problems and suicide in those countries, it's nothing like this 90%. It's something like, and the, the, the best evidence would suggest, in, all, in suicides in Asia, about 40 to 50% of people who die by suicide have been diagnosed with mental illness. And then, so, so the extrapolation is then, if 79% of the world's suicides are in low and middle income countries, 60% of them are in Asia. The majority of people who die by suicide, therefore, do not necessarily have to have had a mental illness. And then the other thing I point out in the book, I think it's a really, really important message and something I've been saying for many, many years now is that, yeah, mental illness, illness is important. We need to treat mental, mental health problems without a doubt. But, and the most common mental health problem associated with suicide is depression, some form of depression. But, uh, but the overwhelming majority of people with depression never kill themselves. Mm. So, it's, so it's about four or 5% of people who are treated in hospital for depression who ever go on to take their own life. So for me, the question is, what is it about those four or 5% of people? How are they different from people who end up going to take their own lives? How are they different from the 95 or 96 percent who don't? And that's the question. And that's why I think, yes, it's, understood, it's important to look at mental illness and treat it. That's why I always bring it back to this sense of understanding the world's view, mm -hmm. an individual's view yeah. of their world, that sense of defeat, that sense of humiliation, that sense of entrapment. And part of that understanding will be mental illness. Part of that understanding will be um, attachment problems or or childhood trauma, or, or do you know what I mean, or social class, or trauma, I mean, or, or abuse, or whatever it may be. Yeah, we've kind of zoomed out and looking at the world, I, I sort of want to take that thread and r run with it. And again, I guess I found it in your book, I just noted the stat and uh, put it in bold. Somebody in the world dies by suicide every 40 seconds, and for every suicide there are 20 attempted suicide. That's an underestimate. Right. And uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, that that we know of, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's still hidden, still hidden. The scale, especially, so in, in those countries where suicide is 
criminalized still, mm-hmm. completely underreported the sort of deaths. So the most so we know that it's probably, I mean, in terms of the statistics, the world statistics, it's seven between 700,000 and 800,000 people we know of die by suicide each year. And 20 times that will attempt suicide. And we know for certain that it's much higher than that because it's just often not reported. And for every, every suicide... Yeah, as... It depends on the population, but yeah, very and in, in the research that's been done, yeah, some studies show it's like 15, 20% maximum, a third, maybe 40% maximum, but it's the minority of people who leave suicide notes. And that's why it makes it so difficult um, for families to make sense of it. Do you think that they're just in so much pain, they just they want out and they are not thinking about giving any explanation to to whoever they're leaving behind the short answer is we don't know for certain right. but in my experience and what we've done i think it's more to do with if you're a communicative person in life maybe and you're more maybe you're more likely to write a suicide note or there's something to do with the relationship between you and those around you but to be honest i don't think we know enough about that and um and, and suicide notes can take many, many different forms. And, I, and I've included a couple in the book and, and they're such powerful documents, but for some, they're just very brief factual documents, but for others, they're, they try and explain why, why they've done what they've done. And, yeah. and usually it's about saying, this is not your fault. Yeah. And that's so important for the loved ones left behind it. That we can never, as people who've been bereaved by suicide, Although we feel incredible guilt and pain and all, all, the, all those other factors or those feelings, we can't be held responsible for an individual's actions and individual's mm-hmm. actions. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'd love to read out a couple of sentences from one of the suicide notes that you did share. It was Anne's one that I found particularly. There was just a couple of lines that really kind of took me aback. Because life takes everything away from you, your self-worth, your achievements, your community, your friends, your family, how you feel about yourself. Because when it is all gone, you will have a decision left and that is whether or not to live. I mean, that's really chilling stuff. Really chilling, but actually that's not a suicide note. And that's that's actually an interview with Anne after she'd made a real, a medical, a really medically serious, she is so lucky to be alive. Um, so to my knowledge, Anne still lives alive, so which, is, which is obviously fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so, but but it's the same principle, which is, I mean... It's her synopsis of, of, of oh, you know, it's... incredible. Yeah. It's so powerful. It really is so powerful. That, as I say, was an, was an interview. And, but I, over the years, and I still get people send me suicide notes and... Um, and they're just, I mean, it's just, I feel such a sense of um, responsibility. And I mean, it's so humbling when people send me these most personal documents. And although it's difficult to know what you can take from a suicide note, what's very clear from Anne's note, or Anne's interview there, obviously, is that sense of being completely broken down as a person. And, and the word which came to me when I first came across, read them, her words were, it felt to me like she was a skeleton of herself or something. That's what came into my head. That's what the image which came up to that. So you're completely not 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 the person she was and just being stripped stripped of who she is. And I think that's so important when we think about trying to understand suicide and why people 
make a suicide attempt or die by suicide is because it is so difficult if you've never been suicidal or never spoken in death to somebody who's been acutely suicidal. It's so difficult to make sense of how can you do this? How could you inflict this pain on those left behind? And people talk about the sort of suicide being a selfish act. And again, I touch on this in the book, and it's not a selfish act at the moment of that crisis. The individual thinks it more as an altruistic act, often that they're doing others a favor. And that sense comes back to this tunnel vision or entrapment or just utter exhaustion. Mm. You just can't go on. And I think that's that's what Anne's description talks about. And then the other sort of suicide notes in there talk about as well. It's like you just can't go on. You just, you, yeah, you just, you can't. There's no more fight left. I mean, I think of one of my best friends. She had a younger cousin who um, attempted suicide at, I think a couple of times before the worst case scenario happened and he was so loved by his family I mean she adored him I mean he was a young lad and he just couldn't see how much he was loved and how bright a future he had and and he was you know he battling his own demons in all of your years like what what is the answer? Do we just keep showing up and keep showing up for people and not shying away from the conversation, I think, is something that you are really, um, you, you, you know, you endorse, you recommend? Well, so for me, um, when I look at the change in people's, when I say people's attitudes, the general public's attitudes towards suicide over the 25 years that I have been doing this research, so for a start, 25 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Obviously, podcasts didn't exist. Obviously, I know that. But we wouldn't be having this. wasn't the priority it was, but it is now. It's becoming. So, so I think, and I talk a lot in the book about, early on in the book, about the myths around suicide. And although we've made some progress in dispelling a lot of those myths, we still have a long way to go. And the problem, the concern I have in terms of what do we do in terms of you talk about keeping showing up, is this idea of we have to change the narrative. We have to, so we've been, we're really good now at saying, let's talk about mental health. And now we're trying to talk and talk about suicide. Because only by talking will we challenge the shame, will we challenge the stigma, because it's stigma which prevents some people from um, reaching out for help. Um, we need to change people's attitude about around masculinity and listening to people and feeling listened to. I think there's a bit something about, um, when we think about the uh, services and treatment, so if if we keep banging on about, oh, it's good to talk and reach out. Well, if you're going to talk or reach out, there has to be services and supports out there available and tailored to your needs. And, and I think that's a big, and we can't sit and go, there's wait. So during this pandemic, there's been lots of instances of, of waiting lists of more than 12 months for children and adolescents getting this mental health support that they, mm. need, they need. That's unacceptable. That is a moral disgrace, yeah. an absolute disgrace. And I'm sick of people going, we just have to make this right. We ha- if their genuine belief in the, on the sort of having parity of esteem, and see if I hear levelling up one more time, if we're going to talk about levelling up, we need to level up, yes, in terms of regions of the UK, in terms of um, the different people from different social backgrounds, mm. but that levelling up in terms of access mm. to treatment for mental health problems yeah. with no delays, 
when you need you need the help now in the same way there's been this huge focus on waiting lists for physical health yeah i'm not saying don't do physical health i'm saying let's do both together yeah and then the last bit of my sort of rant on this is that um it's basically three quarters all of all suicides in the, in the uk are by men and but we do not know whether the psychological and treatments that we know are effective in reducing suicidal behavior in general, we don't know whether they work for men. And for me, the question is, we need to be doing much, much more in tailoring our support for the populations of people at risk, in this case, men. And I'm not saying neglecting women, because of course we have to, because although three quarters of the, of the UK suicides are by men, there has been a creeping up of suicides amongst women. So we need to be ta tackling both and people with, who don't identify as either. We need to look at all of this across, across the piece, but it's tailored support, tailored timely support. That's what's crucial. I have noticed with loved ones, friends, family that have been going through serious problems with their mental health. I think there's too much playing God with the receptionist you phone at your local surgery. Trying to get an, even an appointment, like especially now with, with COVID still dragging on, doctors are still doing most of their appointments via Zoom. And um, and yeah, I've, I've just heard story and story and story about how you're kind of trying to argue your point to a, to a receptionist. And then, of course, you get the 10 minute window with a doctor because that's all you can get. And who can diagnose somebody with, you know, something they can't see? And I'm not saying anything bad about doctors because they've got to know a little about a lot. But, um, yeah, I think there's something that needs to start with immediate access and seeing it as like somebody's having a heart attack that kind of seriousness no i agree i agree and it, it's a different difficult um not to crack so to speak because obviously gps are the gatekeepers to our health care but the difficulty is that and sorry and we know that although most people who die by suicide are not in contact with clinical services so only about it's less than 30 percent of people who die by suicide in contact with mental health services in the 12 months before they die, they die, most are in contact with their GP. So that's just to reinforce some point that you've just made, Gabby, that that role of the GP is crucial. So how do we then optimize that so that we get, so, so a person in crisis gets to the GP, gets who then, the gatekeeper to the GP then is a receptionist. Now, I don't know the answer to this, but but to my mind, one thing I've been advocating is every GP should, if somebody's talking about mental health problems, or if you get, if you're feeling that there's just something not quite right, we should be routinely asking people, are they suicidal, right? So we should be asking them directly. Because most, so although most people who are in contact with their GP don't go in the 12 months before they die, they don't, they often aren't talking about being suicidal, right? So presenting with some other issues. It might be mental health, but maybe physical health as well. So and, and so then if you're trying to intervene, you need to, that's your that's our window of opportunity and asking directly, because in my experience, if you ask the question, you know, if you phrase the question about are you suicidal, but you phrase it in a way which you want or you're open to the answer being yes. And if somebody is suicidal, they're more likely to tell you. Now, the challenge, and I've spoken to GPs about this, is they have a 10 minute window or whatever length of time it is. Um, if you ask that question about being suicidal and the answer comes back is yes, what do you do? Because then you, you've only had this limited window. So I think we need to be 
think changing our model of how primary care works. Now, there are changes and there are now in some practices, and I'm not quite certain what's happened specifically in England, but there are practices in which you've got a mental health nurse embedded within the practice. So we need to think about our models of triage so that, as you say, that bottleneck of the receptionist who plays such a crucial role, but we need to think about, is that the optimal way for somebody who's potentially in a mental health crisis to be triaged? Yeah. I mean, I'm talking to you with my arm in a cast and it's like, that would be, I'd be referred straight away. There's no you know, um in an R in or oh not sure what to do. It's like, you know exactly where to send me and that's to the fracture clinic. So we need that for <laughs> for our mental health for sure. This year's theme for World Suicide Prevention Day is creating hope through action. So in your opinion, how do we do that? The first thing to say is there's no no one single way in which you can do that. And and we, so obviously the World Suicide Prevention Day happens under the auspices of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, of which I am the president. And when we were thinking about the theme, we went through this process, consultation, consultative process. And part of where, where we got, and I'll give you some examples of what I think we could be doing in a second. But the reason we came up with that theme is we, we were really keen that it became, we had an action-oriented theme. Because the previous theme was working together to prevent suicide, which is really important. It's great. But we want an action-related theme, which was more let's what you could do specifically. Of course, working together is doing, but it wasn't very specific. And, and, and because it's a global day, it has to be something which anybody anywhere in the globe can really resonate with and do something with. So the creating hope bit of it is, Basically, any at any level, as an individual, as an organisation, as a community, as a government, we can we all can do things to create hope. And that creating hope on an individual level could be you just take picking up the phone or sending a message <clears throat> to a friend or a family member, just checking in with them. Or it could be um, basically at a level of a government creating hope by basically developing a new service to respond to people's needs or um, connecting with setting up community events so that people feel more connected with their community. And that's so important, obviously, as we now reintegrate, hopefully continue to reintegrate socially post-pandemic or post the um, lockdown aspect of the pandemic. So there's lots can be done that creating hope. But the action bit then is obviously there's actions in terms of creating hope. But Basically, basically recognise that we all, all can have a small part of the puzzle, a small piece or role to play, and that's doing anything at all. Even as small as a smile. I know you said it in the book again, again quoting you, that, that a smile to a stranger, that could just change somebody's... Well, just, I mean, I, I talk about examples of people, because I get emails from people, and it's just um, incredible what things can make a difference, and I've... Uh, I include some of them in the book. But actually, I'll give you one example which isn't in the book, which is it's an illustration of how small things can make a difference. So this is not about what I did specifically. It just happens to be something I did, which this person who's now told me saved their life. And this, so this went back some years ago. I was given a talk in Belfast, and this person was at the talk. And I said, there's something in the talk I said about Remember then that crisis that there's no hope, you can't see hope, and there's always hold on. I can't remember the precise, but something I said resonated with this lady. And then she then came up to me at the end of the talk. I spoke to her, 
And then I think sometime after that, she emailed me and I responded to the email. And I, again, don't remember the details. She remembers what I said. But then literally during this, since the book came out, I, um, she was on Irish radio, national radio station, and saying, and I didn't know this, that basically that in her mind, that just the fact that I had, what something I said I, in the talk had connected with her, but then the fact that I had just replied to this email in her mind, she felt that I was, that she was worthy of what she thought was this big professor person replying to her. But because I just replied as a human to a human, she felt a sense of worth. And that's that small act, she said, literally saved her from acting on her thoughts. And lots of us have stories like that. So it yeah. really isn't about me. It's about thinking about all our actions mm. have reactions mm -hmm. and consequences. And those reactions can be positive. And I suppose that sense, I end, I think I end the book talking about my God, we all, there's so much we all can do to make this work. Sounds, I know it sounds trite, but this sense of treating each other with compassion, with respect, and that sense of providing it. And, and there's a suicide note in the book, actually, a lady who's, who talks about just being feeling that pff, the world's not for her and because she feels so isolated and disconnected. And I think those small things are not the solution. I'm not saying suicide prevention is all down to these things, but it's another part of this complex puzzle that we all can do. Gosh, I think that's such a powerful example. It's just making me think no matter who we meet, whether it's the person we're getting a coffee from or a colleague at work, it's treating them with respect and, and that they're worthy of a respond, yeah. you know, responding to your email or mm. looking in the eye and saying your pleases and thank yous. It's, yeah, those small steps. My favourite line in the book is the importance of listening and the power of silence. I loved that. You know, I'm really pleased because I really like that line as well. And um, and I cried when I wrote that line. And um, that was one of the first lines I wrote as a book, actually. And at the start of the book, I talk about the, how the book happened. And I'd been, yep. because I've been working in the area for so long, I was, I was, I was, I'd been grappling with writing a book on, for the general public on suicide, but I didn't want to just write another book on suicide. And like another mm. academic type book, I wanted to convey the science or understanding, but in a way which would help people. And, and so as I touch on the, uh, the introduction to the book is it's so I couldn't work out how I would do this until I was on holiday. I think it was in, in, in 2019. And I talk about having this sort of eureka moment. I just couldn't sleep one night. And, and I could just, I could just see how it would all fit together, how I could tell the story in a way which was personal, mm -hmm. but not giving away too much of myself because I talk about my own mental health, my own experiences in the book. Yeah. And so I, and, and that, in the introduction I say about then the next morning, I then wrote the first several hundred words of the book. And that was one of the first lines I wrote because that was me recounting my first, the first person who had attempted suicide who I'd interviewed. And um, yeah, so it's, so I'm really, so that's, that's quite touching for me that, oh. um, that you know, that line. It's just so important that it immediately, I got goosebumps when I read it, the importance of listening and the power of silence because there's just so much noise out there isn't there so yeah i love that suicide in the pandemic you're probably still gathering information economic recession i imagine is just gonna i actually dread to to find out what the stats will be in in the next year or two what what are your thoughts here on 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 where we're at well so the the data to date um in terms of suicide deaths have been broadly reassuring in that so with a colleague, Jane Perkis, 
in Melbourne and Anne John in Swansea. They've led this international sort of initiative. I'm one of the collaborators on it, which looked at the suicide rates for the first few months of the pandemic up until end of July 2020. And thus far in that early phase, there was no evidence of an increase in suicides. Now, that, those data are mostly from high-income countries. Now, having said that, we need to be really vigilant because we've got data from, we're doing this UK mental health tracker study in time of COVID. And we know from the first few weeks of the, the lockdown in 2020, suicidal thoughts did increase, in particular in young people, in particular in people from most socially disadvantaged backgrounds, in particular with people who, who have pre-existing mental health problems. So, so, I, so although we haven't seen any increases yet, that's really, really, I'm really encouraged about that. As you've just said, our concern is what happens into rates of unemployment? What happens when furlough mm. is finally removed in the autumn? Mm. Um, and, and, we know, and basically these broader social consequences continue to play out. Physical entrapment as well. I mean, these lockdowns, especially, you know, you want to talk about the 15 to 29 year olds where is it the second leading cause of death is suicide amongst that age group yeah, yeah. in the yeah. in the world or in the UK? In, that, the UK that's the UK that's and the United States. Um, but um, yeah, exactly. It's such an important, such an important population. Obviously, our future, I mean, each death is equally equally awful. But yeah. it's, when you think about the future, the, the whole lies ahead of them. And that fifteen to twenty nine, I mean, that's when you just—it's all about hanging out with your friends, isn't it? And groups and communities and learning yeah. and 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 to have all that taken away from you and and then glimpses of it given back and then it's pulled away again. And oh gosh, yeah. So we have good school-age kids and um and I mean what they've gone through in terms of whatever this homeschooling and all that I mean that's it was really challenging I know it has so it's really important to note that for some people the pandemic suited them right so I'm not saying this the mental health consequences are they're not equal yeah so some people are resilient are, are more resilient <clears throat> others are struggling and and I think that's me to me is the important message is that there were inequalities before the pandemic. And these inequalities have just got worse. But I, but I'm, I'm still hopeful that, in terms of the vigilance, is that as long as governments and communities and organisations, as long as we're all vigilant, we do our bit. Hopefully, we can mitigate the consequences of the recession and the the sort of economic stuff and the social stuff. But it, what's important is it has to be remain a priority. Just because. We're now being able to see each other more face to face. That doesn't mean the pandemic's over. The consequences will be with us for years to come. And all we can do is do our best to mitigate the consequences. Do you think real quick that there's enough resources out there for kids and teenagers in, in terms of like suicide and suicide prevention? I think of social media, which is an explosion and a whole other kind of worms that, you know, we all know that can be it can be great and it can be dangerous, but do you think more should be done at schools in terms of well, like think, education? Well, in one word, yes, okay. absolutely. <laughs> Kids spend so much of their time in schools, so of course it's such an important place to, to intervene and support. And but, and but being positive, again, trying to be optimistic, is mm. there has been 
and new investments, and that's not enough yet. Investment in like providing counselling and support, mental health support in schools. So that's good news, but we've a long way to go. Mm. And, I, and, it, and again, it needs to be tailored. But you have to say a word about the social media stuff because it, you highlighted there quite nicely that it's not a straightforward answer to looking at the relationship between social media and mental health or suicide. Now, the effects of social media use are probably small. Right? And all the research out there would suggest they're small. And, and if you think of the relationship with suicide, it's only one of many factors which could increase vulnerability. But for most people, if you're a young person who's not hasn't got other vulnerability factors, social media is not going to have an adverse impact on your well-being. But, but that's not the same as saying that for one young person or not, another young person who is struggling already or is vulnerable, social media could be dangerous. And it could, and it is, so it's so it's important to recognize that. But I, I suppose I'm a bit frustrated by the some of the narratives in the media, which are social media, this like social media is the reason there's been this increase in suicide or increase in, yeah. in uh, mental health problems. Because it's not as straightforward as that. As you say, there's a lot we've still got a far way to go in terms of blame, like pointing the finger. Um yeah. and, and as you so incredibly spoken about over the past 50 minutes or so there's just so many factors no one thing or person is is responsible are there common signs to look out for if somebody is having suicidal thoughts the first thing to say i suppose is that um the sad reality is that we we can't predict who's going to die by suicide any better than the flipping of a coin and that's just the reality and that's partly because um Although every suicide is absolutely devastating, in sort of statistical terms, it's still a rare event. Um, so that makes because anything which is rare is difficult to, to, to predict. Now, having said that, we can be vigilant so that we can go, okay, let's look out, let's be have our radar out there so we can maybe, if somebody is struggling, be a bit more attuned to it. And that is things like looking at are they talking about being hopeless? Are they talking about being trapped? having no options. So suicide is often, as we touched on the very start, people see it as, a, as it's because of this tunnel vision, suicide is a permanent solution to temporary problems. And that's a, that's a phrase which was coined by this, probably one of the founding fathers of suicide research, a guy called Ed Schneidman in the United States. But it's such an important thing to think about. So, so people do see that, that, my God, I can't see beyond the pain I'm in. This pain is never going to end. And especially young people, I think, find, struggle to see the future, look more distant in the future to, to a time when things will not be as bad. And I suppose one of the things we know from suicide research is suicidal thoughts wax and wane. They come and go in peaks and troughs. But when you're in the midst of that crisis, you can't see that. So it's looking out for talking about hopelessness, talking about being trapped or humiliated, changes in behavior like eating, sleeping, drinking, sexual activity. Um, the other one I talk about in the myths around suicide section in the book is if somebody is has been really struggling, has been down, and but then for so, for no apparent reason they seem to have recovered, that, that's alarm bells because you're sitting going, well, actually, why have they recovered? And one of the concerns we have for some people is that if you're in the depths of despair, the depths of a depressive episode, and you then basically and, the, and that despair go, well, actually, the, the way I'll solve my problems is I'll end my life. Once you make that realization, that decision, 
your problems are solved. So the concern is, and then your mood might start to lift. And as your mood starts to lift, your motivation, your, your cognitive capacity, they all increase. It makes it more likely you're able to plan and carry out the act. So my message is, again, if you're a friend or loved one or family member is, yeah, so if there is this improvement in mood, well, check in with them just to see what's what. And then, but of course, if, if their crisis has been solved or they've received treatment, which is not working, well, then that understand, you can understand the, the improvement in mood. It's this unexplained improvement in mood. I suppose the other thing I would just say in terms of the warning signs is like people trying to get their lives in order. It seems as if they're trying to sort out bits of their life or their will or stuff. And for some people, that certainly happens before they end their life. But a message I would like to convey before we do sort of um, end is, again, trying to bring this full circle is that if you are concerned about somebody, please do reach out and please ask that question. Are you thinking of ending your, ending your life? And in the book, I give you tips and support on how you might do that because it is a difficult question to ask. Because from my experience, most people, when you ask that question, are absolutely relieved. But for too many people, those thoughts in their head are shaming. Like, especially if it looks to the outside world like you've got everything. And why? what have you got to complain about? And that person could still be suffering incredibly inside. There's no face to suicidal people. There's no... There's these sort of stereotypes, they just don't hold. So please, please always reach out because you won't do harm, but you could, it could be, as I've said already, the start of a life-saving conversation. Mm. And then just finally, worst case scenario, life after a loved one's suicide. What have you, I'm sure people have reached out to you in the past quite a bit or you've been you've been working with with families and you know friends that are grieving are, are there are there any words of comfort because it it does touch so many people like what what do you say to that person who's just devastated i mean that's a it's such a difficult question to answer i know i know, I know. however Suicidal grief is different from other types of grief in the, in the sense that the family feel, can often feel, and those of when I'm speaking to somebody who's bereaved myself, um, mm -hmm. you feel, what could I have done differently? Mm -hmm. So there's huge guilt. Mm -hmm. There can be huge shame. There can be anger. And my advice is that the pathway, the, the pathway through grief is different for everybody. That experience of grief is unique, but there are common features and some of them are anger, guilt, shame, that sense of rejection. How could my loved one do this to me? But I think if we're trying to support somebody who's bereaved, it's recognizing that and it's just being there, being there for someone. Uh, and so sometimes you're just looking just to say, do you want to talk about you want to share memories of the loved ones to let that person that that happen. So you're just you're a companion, um, and if the person wants to ask questions or wants your opinion, please give it, and don't not talk about it because that just adds compounds the shame. And just empathize and treat the person with compassion. And because again, in my experience, if you ask somebody the questions with compassion and with curiosity. 
and support, you're not likely to do any harm. And and I, and I think what you're often looked, if you're bereaved and you're feeling all these complex, difficult, difficult emotions, you're overwhelmed already. And it's, and it, you just want somebody to treat you like a human being, somebody else who's there and, and, and yeah, to, yeah, passion and, and warmth and support. To acknowledge what's happened and maybe not, even if it's uncomfortable for, for you to dive in and, and you know, talk. Or, or even just ask them, what, 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 what's the, what do you want? What are you looking for? I'm here for you mm. um, in whatever way you want. You're, uh, feel free to phone me at any stage or I, do you want me to be silent? I, it's just to be there. I think it's just asking because like any any other experience, we are all, are, are, we're all unique individuals. The experience of grief is unique. And there also will become times which peers with people then actually have sense of um, of relief that maybe their loved ones no longer suffering. And that's, so there's lots of complexity there. But I think the one word which probably encapsulates grief is unpredictability. It's just unpredictable from moment to moment and from day to day. So you, the individual could be absolutely fine, but then the next minute, I certainly know I've experienced that and moments when I've been absolutely fine in, in, in the early days when I lost my closest friend, one of my closest friends, that's a player who I mentioned a lot in the book, yeah. I told her it's just in tears yeah. and then I'm fine again. And it's just that unpredictable. Yeah. Just being there. Yeah, there was a sad irony that it was the, the very person who suggested you doing a PhD in suicide, unfortunately, tragically lost him, didn't you? Years later. Yeah, well, he's the person he, he supervised my PhD as well. He, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely devastating. Um, it, well, both those experiences, and I really had to question whether I was able to continue in the field because literally every single day I'm doing something about suicide. Not one day goes by for the last 25 years that I haven't been doing something, thinking about it or working on it. How do you keep life light outside of work? You must have to, I don't know, play the trumpet or go well, trampolining? Play, or... <laughs> I, play, I play tennis. That's ah, okay. That's I talk about, nice. I talk about, I talk about gets a wee mention in the book somewhere about um, playing tennis and Yes, but also importantly, though, one thing I have changed, start doing, and um, is I, I see a therapist. So that helps me manage my own mental health, my own experiences, and dealing with all this. And um, and then just talking, just talking to family and friends is help helps. But tennis for me, though, in terms of the ultimate emptying my because I, if I want to play anyway, decent, yeah. I have to. Focus. We all need something to get out of our heads, you know. For me, it's yoga. That's my time where I just and I've only recently since I've got the pandemic to thank for it, and now I'm a complete yogi. <laughs> I've never done yoga, I've never, so maybe I'll give that a try as well. Got to get the right teacher. That's would that would be my advice. <laughs> it's the chemistry thing of the right teacher and how you like to be taught. Um, but yeah, I find it incredible. Your book, I'm going to bring it full circle when it is dark. As you can see, I've got my copy here. Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It. I really appreciated how it is a heavy subject matter, but as people can, well, when they listen to this podcast, they can hear that you have such a lovely, warm, conversational way about you. And that definitely comes across in the book, which helps, I think, you read it. Yeah, I'm delighted you said that because that's that was one of the aims of what I hoped it would be. It's a conversation and written in a way which, because it is a heavy topic, that people can sense 
it's, for me, it's not just about the research, it's about people's lives and yeah. trying to convey that sense of compassion. So, yeah, it's been incredibly rewarding, but also reassuring um, that people really, really like it. So um, it may have a really lovely, lovely feedback from people, from, from everybody, from people who've been bereaved, as well as those who've been suicidal themselves or people who are just trying to understand or support somebody they know who's been suicidal. So that's what I've yeah. And practical tips, so as well, if you're trying to ask the question about suicide or support somebody or I'm just trying to understand, because I think part of it for me, I was trying to think back to what I thought about suicide before I'd done any research into it mm-hmm. and try and help people understand that it's more than somebody being depressed. Do you know I mean? It's trying to understand that complexity, but in a way which we can make sense of. Yeah, well, I'm sure anybody that's listened to this will definitely have a better understanding and there's so much more that they can dive into in your book. Rory, it's been so great to chat to you today. I wish we had longer, really, because I have so many more questions, but maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll speak another time. <laughs> maybe. No, it's been, it's been a pleasure, um, Gabby. Thanks a million. Joining me now is Alice Handy, CEO and founder of Ripple Suicide Prevention. Alice, welcome. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Of course. In your own words, I'd love you to um, to tell me all about Ripple. Sure. So I am uh, not a mental health professional. Um, I was really thrown into this arena and this world in November 2020 when I lost my only sibling, my brother Josh, to suicide. Still very raw for yeah. family and I. It's nine months. Um, so it's it's something which we're, you know, coming to terms with every day still. And I see his picture in, in the background. Yes, that's him. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> the idea is that, you know, he's with me at, at every meeting that I have with with Ripple um, because he's the whole he's the whole reason why I'm why I'm doing this to stop other people um, feeling how he felt and to make sure that people get the support that they need. So when I was told that that Josh had taken his own life, I as a, an older sister would do immediately went searching for answers. What could I have done differently? Why did he feel like he couldn't talk to me? Um, what other circumstances were there that, you know, potentially had contributed as to, as to his decision on that night? And my background is in IT and cybersecurity. So that's what I do in my day job. And I wanted to see, you know, what was Josh searching for um, on the internet? And I discovered that he'd been looking at some really harmful, harmful material and content online. And it got me thinking, when you do a search like that and you search for something harmful in nature relating to this topic, what support comes up for that individual to help them? And the answer is not, not a lot, to, to be honest. Um, it's a helpline. Helpline number comes up. You can scroll past it very easily and head on to the harmful websites that my brother himself had visited. So effectively, Ripple is combating that problem and assisting it um, because more needs to be done to intercept people who are searching for this harmful content and people need to be given more of a choice to get mental health support in a way that suits them. Not everybody likes talking over the phone. Not everybody can talk over the phone. And my brother was very much one of those people. He was 21 and 
as most 21 year olds would appreciate you know he didn't like talking over the phone at the best of times but he also had a condition called Tourette's so that meant for him something that we would consider quite straightforward and simple as having a conversation he he couldn't do over the telephone really very easily he would often really struggle to get his words out and so when the Samaritan's number would have come up for him after he conducted that search it would never ever have resonated with him and it didn't resonate with him so Ripple aims to solve that and, and give people more of a choice you know there's many other mental health charities out there that do some fantastic work shout a free 24 7 text line calm free web chat facility for men lots of stuff out there so that really is what I'm trying to do and um, my personal story as to why I mean it's incredible and to think you know it came out of the most tragic of circumstances less than a year ago and deepest condolences and it's it, it almost sounds like a little too cliche to say that but I'm so sorry for what you and your family went through because he looks like a you know a gorgeous boy and I just I am so in admiration of, of everything you're doing with Ripple. I do have one question and I don't want us to go into anything that's too triggering but in terms of when somebody is in that headspace how harmful is the content available online? Unfortunately it can be very harmful you know, and I, I won't, you know, name some of the websites and so on. But the, the, the fact of the matter is there's content available on the Internet at the moment that shouldn't be there. And people who are searching for that kind of content clearly need support and they need help. And the idea is that Ripple provides them with that. It's a disruptive, innovative piece of technology that intercepts people when they're at their most vulnerable and instead provides them with a message of hope that things will get better and a selection of mental health resources for them to utilize in a, in a way that suits them. And that will save thousands and thousands of lives. Um, but yeah, in answer to your question, some of the stuff on the internet just shouldn't be there. And I'm working with the government at the moment to hold these technology organizations, social media platforms to account because they need to do more to remove this content and monitor it more effectively. Absolutely. It's a browser plugin. So does that mean that you, I know that it's available for free, which is brilliant, but so you have to download it yourself. It's not something that is already installed on yeah, the browser. Yeah, great, great question. Um, so to start with, it's something which you're going to have to proactively go and install. However, if you're a school or a college or a university, or a business, you can install the Ripple tool en masse very, very easily. So that means if we take a school as an example, and you've got 500 computers at the, in the school library and in the classrooms, the IT department of that school are able to install Ripple on all 500 of those computers in a very short period of time, very easily. It's a light touch browser extension. If you're a parent, and you have a family laptop, family computer, you can install it in less than 60 seconds on your computer. And that 60 seconds that that takes could save a life because you just don't know what people are looking at on, on their computers and on the internet. Um, the aim is though that Ripple will be reactive as opposed to proactive. So this is the first stage for me. The next stage for me is around actually integrating Ripple into Wi-Fi networks. 
So without getting too techy, uh, that would mean that, you know, the likes of uh, Network Rail, who I'm working with at the moment, would be able to integrate Ripple into their Wi-Fi at all of their major train stations and on their train lines. So that if any of their passengers were at one of the stations on the Wi-Fi and they were searching for something harmful, Ripple would be coming up and intercepting them. And that's a, a crucial um, partnership for me because very sadly, you know, suicides are, are prominent on the railway and on the, in that industry. So that's a fantastic partnership for me. But yeah, in answer to your question, it's, it's a proactive install first. We're going to make it more reactive as we go forward. Fantastic. To reiterate, it's available to download for free. Ripple is spelt with a semicolon, so it's R semicolon P P L E. Yep, all my social channels are are up and running. Um, so I'm on Instagram, Ripple Suicide Prevention, Facebook, Ripple Suicide Prevention, uh, Twitter under Ripple Tools, and LinkedIn um, under Alice Hendy Ripple Suicide Prevention. So would love to connect with anybody who is, you know, interested in the tool, has questions about how to roll it out. I've got a tech team that are amazing behind me that we can work with um, in order to get this integrated very easily into your computers. Because, you know, as I said before, this really could save a life and you don't know who you might be saving. Thank you again, Alice. You are just you're a remarkable lady and I wish you all the best. <laughs> Thanks, Gabby. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hello, Gabby back with you. On behalf of the whole My Possible Self crew, we wanted to thank you for taking the precious time out of your day to listen to this podcast. Also, big thanks again to Rory O'Connor and to the lovely Alice Handy for taking the time to chat to us too. If you haven't already, make sure you have downloaded and subscribed to the My Possible Self app. We really are trying to build a community um, of support for ourselves and for each other. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Twitter at My Possible Self. Until the next episode, please do look after yourselves and each other. Remember, we do have a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which has a whole wealth of information should you be in need of professional assistance. And I'm going to leave you with this. Have a think about how you could create hope for someone through action.